it never occurred to me that I was in danger. I mean, it didn't occur to me, that's what I'm saying. In other words, you were faced with something that you had to cope with. And therefore, getting upset about it and panicking and hiding it was not an option, was not a way of coping with it. You, you had to cope with it considering the, the reality of what was in front of you. The reality was that um, my staff were all getting shot up and I had to get them home. <laughs> that was really, that was my preoccupation. Now, I could have been shot just like anybody else was. Um, after all, I was only 50 yards from, <laughs> from the line and it could just as easily have hit me as the glass window. I was offered a job in a company, an American company. I'm not even sure I had a driving license at the time. Um, but Hertz had just started in the UK and I joined them as a trainee. After I'd been there for nine months, they, they sent me to the Bahamas as general manager of their operation there. Anyway, I was there for two years and um, they moved me to New York um, and then they decided to open up the operation in Israel. Hertz in those days was a company that felt strongly about opening up in Israel. So here I was, I was sent there, I didn't even know where it was. How old were you at that time? 25. I was having a haircut one morning and, and the, the fellow, they were listening to the news, of course, the hairdresser, and I didn't speak Hebrew. At least I spoke as much. I spoke enough to make people think I understood it, but then promptly started speaking English, so they never knew quite if I knew anymore, which I didn't. Uh, uh, he says, oh, the Air Force have uh, attacked Egypt. Well, by 8 o'clock in the morning, the Israeli Air Force had destroyed the Egyptian Air Force. By 8 o'clock in the morning. So that took them an hour and a half on the ground, and that was the beginning of the war. So I was there for three years, um, setting up the business. Um, we had a war in 1967, which was fairly traumatic for all concerned. And it doesn't matter what your training is, you won't have learned how to cope with something like that. And we suddenly found that Jordan next door um, was all of a sudden part of Israel. And there had been a Hertz operation in Jordan a licensee who we could never talk to because of the border. I used to wave at him because people could travel across the border and the Mandelbaum Gate in Jerusalem. Um, and all of a sudden, there he was in Israel, poor man, didn't know what to do. So we had to find ways of getting these things done. As for as long as Israel had existed in 1948, Jerusalem had been split in two. Half of it was Jordan and half of it was Israel. That's how, that's how it ended up by being at the time of the armistice in 1948. This, the ceasefire line was banged through the middle of the city. So therefore, neither side could talk to each other, of course. They were enemies. And all of a sudden, it became one city again, with all the implications for all the people on both sides. So, for example, 
our Jordanian licensee, uh, Mr. Maroum, I could see where his house was from where I worked. Some paratroopers ended up in his garden and put him against the wall and they thought he had been a soldier and quickly changed into um, civvy clothes, which of course soldiers are not allowed to do. So they stuck him against the wall, but he was shouting, I'm from Hertz. Well, it's, the Israeli army is entirely 80% um, part-timers. They, they've done the service at 18, and then they, they're reservists until they're 45. And one of the paratroopers was our electrician, who'd been doing all the work in our offices. And the fellow said, well, he, he said, I, I'm from Hertz. And the fellow says, oh, I know Hertz on this side, Bob Frost. I know Mr. Frost, this fellow said. He said, stay there. So he got in his half-track, this is in the middle of the war, came across the border to my office where I was sitting, sitting wondering what to do. And he says, I've got a fellow across there who says he's the Hertz man in, um, in Jordan. Uh, we don't trust him and we think he's not. But in any case, jump in the half-track and I'm going to take you over there and you're going to identify him, which is what I had to do. Um, and I identified him, and he still thinks I saved his life, <laughs> which I probably didn't. Um, anyway, of course, we became friends, and I had to help him to overcome the huge problems which uh, the country was coping with as a result of, of suddenly Israel was suddenly was twice the size. The first day of the war I travelled to Jerusalem straight away because uh, our office had been damaged. My sales manager was sitting under the desk at the time and phoned me and said, we've just lost our window. And our office was in sight of the, the, uh, of the Jordanian line. Having gone up there, about 10 minutes after we got there, at the bottom of the road, turning into our road, came a convoy of tanks. And we didn't know whether they were Jordanian ones or Israelis. However, as they came closer to us, it was obvious they were Sherman tanks and therefore Israeli. And would you believe that our city manager in Jerusalem was in the first tank? In 1948, in the armistice, the agreement was that whatever uh, armaments were on either side of the border they could both keep them. The Israelis had 12 Sherman tanks at that time. And they were told, you can keep those 12 Sherman tanks in, Jer in Jerusalem. You may not move them. You must, you must not add to them. They, nothing else. Jerusalem had 12 Sherman tanks. That was it. The, the only armaments that were allowed there. And what we never knew was that our city manager in Jerusalem was in charge of these 12 tanks. I mean, he was the officer in charge of them. And uh, he'd been called up long ago. You know, we'd lost him two weeks before, but we didn't know where he went. They never told you know they never told you what they're doing in the army ever. They're, doesn't matter what level. They they're just somewhere in Israel. I probably never functioned with more with more than eighty percent of the staff at any one time. They were always in reserve duty. Anyway, it turned out that the Jordanians had taken over. Um, government house. Rafi's tank unit was given the job of, of clearing that. And so he came by, waved of course, and we never knew if we'd see him again. Um, and at the same time as he was coming up the road, three of our cars there and one of our cars there was damaged by gunfire. 
So it was probably as close as I got. When he came back, when he came back, he brought with him a great shell casing back with him and he gave it to me. And he said it was the first shot he'd fired. And uh, it holds my umbrellas out there. He'd already had two wars. Can you imagine you know, being brought up in that environment? He'd fought in 48, he'd fought in 56, and there he was again fighting in 63, in 67. I had to ship my family out. I got them on a plane to Athens. My daughter, my son was born in Israel and I had two da younger daughters. So she and them had to just get on the plane and, and sent them out. Shimon was four months, um, two and four. So there was an apprehension about the safety of my family and I was assured by the British consul that there was a British destroyer offshore who would take off the rest of us <laughs> if we had to go, if we got that far. Anyway, I had the prize for digging the deepest hole in my, in my local area, a big dugout for safety. And we were expecting them to shell us, you see, because we were only in that piece of land seven miles wide. Oh, well, someone could sit in Jordan and just lob a sh uh, anything into you. And I had to dig one for the fellow next door, and he gave me, he was very grateful, even today he talks about it. But I remember the, the King David Hotel, which was a very famous hotel in Jerusalem, was right opposite our office. So I nipped in there to see the general manager and have a cup of coffee with him. We were sitting downstairs in the, in the, in the cellar. It was the only safe place to be. And, um, and, you know, philosophizing really about, well, you know, what's going on in the world? Are we, you know, are we, what do we do? And he said, well, I'd do the best thing. He was born in Germany. Um, and like others, he'd come as a child to Israel. Um, as the general manager eventually of the biggest hotel in the town, the city. And I think that we were all, none of us were, uh, you know, it's not as if we didn't sort of run. <laughs> we didn't think, oh, they're firing at us, let's go. And it didn't occur to anyone. What occurred to us was that we had to preserve what was there and to look after the interests of our business. It wasn't until afterwards um, that you looked back at it and thought, golly gee, you know, um, we coped with that. I wouldn't be sitting here to talk to you today if the Israelis hadn't done what they did in 1967. I was very sorry to leave there and I've still maintained strong connections. And so they were wonderful people to work with. And um, when you think that, I mean, they came from every country. My secretary um, was at Belson. She survived. Yeah. Um, my city manager in Haifa 
he'd been at Buchenwald and he survived. But many of their family didn't. So they came as youngsters to Israel and they found a way of coping. I was exposed to more of the realities of life than many people get exposed to. Both in terms of human nature, uh, what makes people tick, uh, what stops them ticking, <laughs> how people live in di totally different social environments. I'm, I was fortunate or unfortunate that I'd been exposed over a long period of time to much more of those pressures than many people are. Um, many people delegate it to other people. Uh, the businesses I was in required me to be on the front line, more so than maybe many other people would be. And in so doing, it gave one more experience than one would otherwise normally have in one's life. You can tuck yourself in a little corner and, and make a big fuss about the fact that Woolies doesn't open until 8 o'clock, uh, or whatever it is. And really, it's not that important in comparison to some of the other more fundamentals which you face, particularly in other countries. We come to expect a great deal of, of how we live a comfortable life. And the slightest thing which actually knocks that even five degrees port or starboard, we get all fussed about. And I think, you don't know how lucky you are, fellas. If that's all you have to fuss about, um, then uh, what a shame that you don't have more experience to understand and be more realistic about it. My name's Bob Frost. I was born in 1939 in North Wales and Tasmania. I first came here in 1957 on the Orion to collect apples. Never thought I'd come and live here. 